welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. and welcome to Nightlight. Thanks for sharing your time with me. I'm really excited to do this show tonight. First, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. You can find him on the Internet. He's a Native storyteller. All you have to do is Google Native storytellers or Ken Quiethawk, and you'll learn about an amazing way of preserving history through time. It's uh, inspiring, and he is an absolute professional and it's an adventure to listen to their native stories that tell you about cosmology, history, and, well, the creation of everything, actually. I have with me tonight um, an amazing lady. I have Normandy Ellis with me, and she's written a book called Imagining the World into Existence. Uh, and it's a fascinating book about a topic that I've always been, you know, really excited about. Let me tell you a little bit about the book. Drawing from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Pyramid Texts, the Book of Toth, and other sacred hieroglyphic writings spanning three millennia of Egyptian mystery traditions, she reveals the magical language of creation and words of power that enabled the ancient Egyptians to act as co-creators with the gods. Examining the power of hieroglyphic thinking, how thoughts create reality, and the multiple meanings behind every word of power, she shows how with the Neturu, probably didn't pronounce that right, <clears throat> we imagine the world into existence, casting a spell of consciousness over the material world, uncovering the deep layers of meaning and symbol within the myth of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. She investigates the shamanic journeys the ancient Egyptian priests used to view the unconscious and the afterlife and shares their initiations for immaculate conceptions, transubstantiation, resurrection and eternal life initiations that later became part of the christian mystery school revealing the words of power used by these ancient priests and sorcerers she explains how to search for the deeper hidden truths behind their spells and shows how ancient egyptian consciousness holds the secret of life itself revealing the initiatory secrets <clears throat> I have to go back. I lost my place. Revealing the initiatory secrets of the Osirian Mystery School, she provides the essential teachings and shamanic tools needed to return to Zeptepi, 
the creative source, as we face a transitional time of radical change currently at hand. She's an award-winning author, workshop facilitator, and director of Penn House Retreat Center, the author of many books, including Awakening Osiris and co-authoring of Invoking Scribes of Ancient Egypt. She leads tours to Egypt and shamanic journeys. And in her spare time, she is also a spiritualist minister, astrologer, and certified clairvoyant and medium. She's well-rounded and and has so much knowledge and wisdom inside. It's amazing, and I am so delighted to welcome her to the show tonight. Welcome, Normandy. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, you know, sometimes people have a bio that could take up the whole two hours. So, um, (laughs) and and I'm sure most, most people with your kind of credentials, don't do something because it's going to look good on your bio. It's just, you know, here's another area I want to expand into, and then you're off and running. Oh, that's exactly Um, right. You know, the best way to learn anything in your life is is just inquiry, to have restless curiosity. Well, you know, I think also the fact that you you have mastered the art of following your bliss, and you know when you do that, then everything just takes on a whole new um perspective for you it's It's sort of like this is what I love, and oh boy, look at this and you know when when looking at the hieroglyphs now I've always been fascinated with egypt and and all of the materials there with certainly from from grade school King Tut's tomb and then beyond so um and that was a very long time ago it it was half a century ago so so it's it's always been a fascination for me and i've been so delighted to find that that there is so much more research going on today that that goes beyond just you know the fact that you know who could have built these and they couldn't have done it with the copper tools and into the fact that that the hieroglyphs have always fascinated me and and especially with the work that you've done because it it's you know when we write things we put a word down and it's the sound and and we see the word and we get a concept but but with the hieroglyphs there are so many different interpretations of them and the deeper you go the more mystical and spiritual they become how did you how did you get drawn into this part of your research well it probably began when i was very young a uh, girl wanting to decide on my life path. I didn't know if I wanted to be a writer or a painter. And a funny thing, you know, hieroglyphs, when I got into graduate school and had to learn another foreign language, I was fascinated with hieroglyphs because they were both, you know, uh-huh. the art and the sound and the language and the further I got into it, uh, Ten years of study, just how does this work and how does that work? And, you know, it, it it really was fascinating to me. I've always loved language, but, um, yeah, hieroglyphs really, really sung to my heart, you know. Well, well what fascinates me is that the, the scribes that wrote them, um, we're not were the scribes that wrote them the actual person who was interpreting them or is 
I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I go back and forth because it, it, it wasn't somebody dictating to them. It was, so who actually they wrote? Did, yeah, they did. Um, there were early scribes who uh, carried on the tradition of being a sacred uh, cantor, I guess. You know, you would think of it as being a cantor in a in a temple or a church of, of some type, a cathedral. Um, and so you learned the sacred language. There were proper tones and proper sequences, proper ways to make the sound uh, holy, if you will, you know. Um, and so the priests, who were lector priests inside these temples, when they were not working on their their uh, metaphysical work inside the temple, they were teaching scribe school. And so they had a number of students who would come to them and learn uh, the hieroglyphs. Now, some of them obviously were better artists than others. Um, some were better singers, had better voices, could carry the vibration and the tone a lot better. But um, a true high priest could do everything. He could make the sounds. He could make the the uh, images. He could put things together so that it really sounded like poetry, you know. And I would say one of the best high priest scribes that I could think of would be Akhenaten, who wrote the uh-huh. great hymn to the Aten that is nearly verbatim the same hymn as Psalm 104 um, in the Bible. It's almost exact. So certainly he was a, he was a poet that um, was, was well-versed and well-copied, at least, well-emulated. Now, of course, we're talking thousands of years between the creation of the hieroglyphs and our trying to understand them. So, yes, yes. So we we I mean you go into such an amazing way of of looking at them and and experiencing them and I'm I'm wondering does does the person who is doing the interpretation today does the level of consciousness they're able to reach for depend upon the level of consciousness within themselves I believe that is the case um I have read some translations of the hieroglyphs that were, um, oh, I hate to say it, they were almost like gobbledygook because they didn't go deep enough, you know. Uh-huh. It's like if you were studying the Jewish, the Hebrew language, and you're studying uh, the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah is going to reveal a lot more to the Hebrew alphabet than what you would get in an ABC Darian, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and so a lot of that, mysticism is inherent in the language itself. In that same way with the Kabbalah and with the Egyptian hieroglyphs, it is um, a process of uncoding. Now, there's another woman I have to say that um, I love what she has done. I didn't know of her when I started. I think she's younger than me, but her name is Susan Brind Morrow, and um, she is a beautiful translator of hieroglyphs. Well, it's just uh, I to me. The... Go ahead. No, I, I, you know, when, when, when reading how you had interpreted some of the, the material, it, 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 there, there, there was definitely a, a, 
sense of a spiritual awareness that was there, you were able to go much deeper than a lot of other people that, you know, you know, History Channel and stuff like that. They, you know, so-and-so did this and so-and-so wrote his chariot to here. But, but you took it so much further into the symbology of on a, on a mystical, spiritual level that, that it, it added such a richness to what they were saying. I mean, not only with the um, Book of the Dead, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, with, with all of it, um, it, it, it really is a, a roadmap for spiritual ascension. And, I think and it's the, not... the ancient Egyptians believed that it was a roadmap, that uh-huh. it was that whole Book of the Dead was how to turn death consciousness into life consciousness or how to be so fully alive in this life that you just step across a bridge into the next life. You know, everything that we do here as spiritual beings is, is basically practice for what comes in the afterlife. All of our dreaming life is practice for how to make changes into the next lifetime. And for me, trying to translate those hieroglyphs, when I first started it, you know, almost 40 years ago, I was fascinated with the idea that um, the ancient Egyptians thought that, that the most important thing and the most sacred thing that a scribe, a writer, could do would be to write his own Book of the Dead and to really understand it and know it. And that's why I started to translate it. Because it was a knee, a, an ancient Egyptian scribe wrote that book, but I wrote my papyrus of Normandy uh-huh. was through Awakening Osiris. You know, I learned how to read the glyphs and see through it and try to bring it into my own consciousness, not just an ancient text. Well, and I think that it was fascinating that 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 the the book of the dead and and stuff differed in in the different places within Egypt that that it was written so that you know there is definitely uh, a different flavor to hieroglyphs in depending on the geographic location of where you are in Egypt or the time frame right. that you are or the time which, frame that you're in exactly so, so you can see how the level of consciousness in the Egyptian people changed and shifted over. I mean, come on, it was, what, 2,000 years that they stretched over, two, 3,000 years? About 3,000 years of history that we know of that we can actually compute, but believed to be much older than that. You know, they can't just emerge full-blown. They must have no. developed... Through a period of time, you know. So, yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because you know you, you you know if you're if you're looking at you know what history says that that it was Toss that brought them the ability to write and and to record. And, That's right. You know, frankly, and some of frankly, the chapters I, were written by ahead. his own fingers. They say you know that that Toth wrote. 42 chapters of the Book of the Dead with his own fingers. Uh-huh. And, and you sort and of I wonder... That it's not just mythology to me. Yeah. You know? 
Well, listen, I'm I'm all for there was a toss. I do believe it. Um, then a lot of work with the emerald tablet material as well. Um, the 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 level of consciousness and and you know I don't know if Toth was a you know uh, an extraterrestrial or or what he was but but I do, personally I believe that that there was a Toth um, and you know if there wasn't in my mind there is so therefore there was um, <laughs> but I'll create it one way or another. Um, you know, if, if enough people believe in something, something, someone, they create an egregore that takes on a life of its own. So, you know, either way you look at it. But, but the, I, I find it fascinating that, that the, um, the normal people of the time, you know, weren't, they didn't play with the hieroglyphs. So that, there had to be a scribe that wrote them down because it wasn't like you go to school and you learn, you know, hieroglyphs one, two, and three you know, or anything like that. Right. That's right. Well, and it started out with only the priests were working with the hieroglyphs. And when the hieroglyphs were the most beautifully inscribed and beautifully written, the most pristine, um, was in the Old Kingdom. And it was a priestly occupation. Those, Those people worked on behalf of the Pharaoh who was, considered the embodied God Um, and they had a kind of hive mind if you will where everyone worked on behalf of the community uh, together so that the farmers were doing their work as farmers and the priests were doing their work as priests but you know the interesting thing that I think is fascinating about it is that priests (laughs) priests were also farmers they would work in the temple for a season you know, which was basically 30 days. Um, And then they would take off 30 days and they would go and either run their scribe school or take care of their field, you know. Um, And taking care of your field was a beautiful occupation because the fields themselves, the trees, the plants, the animals, were embodying the God spark. And so you were taking care of God even though you were you know, marching through the field barefoot, you know, putting seeds in the soil. Um, well, I, I it was think a sacred task. That that concept, I I would love to see our politicians apply to themselves. Um, I think it, it it means a great deal more if you are truly a part of the community rather than you know, isolated from them. And yes, um, exactly. I I think that that the ancient Egyptians had 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 it down you know to a profound science and 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 it worked for the the population and it worked for even even the the royalty so it it kind of um made the society far more effective and and like you said 3000 years is is nothing to sneeze at it it right. definitely we haven't done that here <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> But but what what also was fascinating is that that so many philosophers went to Egypt to study in Egypt because that's where the greatest insight and wisdom was was centered. And of course, you know the the library at Alexandria, and it's just it's amazing that that they they gathered together as much as they did. One wonders right. how far back it it actually went because. 
Um, I think it had to be more than 3,000 years. I really do. Um, and I, I think would so, bet too. That, you know, it, it just, to me, it was, I, I bet it predates the flood. It has to. Um, because the wisdom and the knowledge that was there was was just phenomenal. I mean, nobody's figured out how they got all those paintings done in the in the in the pyramids, not in the pyramids, but in the tombs without electric lights and stuff like that. So they they had to have technology beyond what we've given them credit for, and they certainly had wisdom. And I think we're not just now breaking into understanding their their cosmology and their understanding of life and creation and I think one of the things that you you suggested here, um, you know, that there were three kingdoms and they had different mystery traditions. And you you want to kind of go into that just briefly? Yeah, um, I will. They they span about I would say around a thousand years each, give or take, you know, two or five, two to five hundred years each side. But starting uh-huh. back around three thousand BC, you have the old kingdom, and that was the pyramid culture where most of the texts were written inside um, stone, you know, on stone walls inside the pyramids. They were not inside the Great Pyramid, which I believe was an initiation uh, chamber, uh-huh. not a burial chamber. Um, I also believe, in my opinion, that the texts inside the Pyramid of Unis, which uh, for a long time we thought those were the first, came from the fifth dynasty of the old kingdom. And um, those were, they were very finely crafted in granite. They were carved into granite, or I should say onto granite, because some of them were bas-relief. And that's really almost impossible to try to get, um, you know, uh, the wing of a bird, which is the letter M, an owl, to come out from the stone, it's amazing feat. I don't know how they did it without lasers. You know, I really don't. <laughs> and these these are just, you know, row after row after row of hieroglyphs. There's no pictures, but the text is just magical, transformative. It's filled with um, what I consider the very first text of uh, transubstantiating which talks about, you know, take, eat, this is my body given to you. You know, it's like we're eating the body of the gods, and that's a text that's inside there. Climbing the Jacob's ladder, the la- you know, where the souls go up and down the ladder is yeah. inside that text. Um, there's just an amazing amount of stuff in there, you know, body to earth, soul to sky, you know, the thing that we always say at everyone's funeral. You know, it's all inside this pyramid text of Unus. And um, it just blows me away that it was around 3000 B.C. that that piece of writing and this beautiful poetry came out. Um, And I'm talking about really, there's this lovely poem. I want it engraved on my tombstone. It's a hymn to the sky goddess Nut. And it goes, oh, great one who became sky You are strong. You are mighty. You bend yourself above the whole earth. You embrace it. As you enfold all stars and people, so enfold me. Make of me an invisible star inside your body. Isn't that beautiful? 
Oh, I my gosh. I love that poem. I love <laughs> that poem. And, and that's like put in the burial chamber. You want to become a star inside the body of the goddess, the night sky. It's lovely, totally lovely. So then, and that's like thousand that's years, like five thousand yeah. years ago, you know. And, and yes, that's five thousand years me ago. When people when people are are talking, say again. When people talk about ancient Egypt, they're talking quite often about people who were very primitive, and to me, that yes. is not primitive. No, that is not primitive. No. Um, that really is about as sophisticated as you could get because the uh-huh. the language and the puns and the beauty inside it is such that it's like nothing we see these days very often. And then something happened, you know. Um, there came a time when the culture wasn't working really well and it was overrun with uh, populace, you know, uh, the cities were beginning to crumble. There were about 250 years where it looked like it was going to fall apart. And then the Middle Kingdom rises up. One man comes and brings the culture together. And so then you have the coffin texts. They start, okay, we're not, we're not going to just put them in the tombs. We're going to put these in the coffin texts. And that allowed people who are not wealthy an opportunity to contemplate and use some of these same texts for themselves and have them written on wooden coffins in which their mummified bodies were placed. That lasted for a while, and it developed uh, what we call the Book of Two Ways, an understanding of um, the passage on the top of the earth and then beneath the earth. You know, kind of like the sun across the sky and the sun moving through the underworld in the darkness, raw in the sky, you know, heaven and I will say underworld, but it's not necessarily hell in that way. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's another 500 years that of disruption um, and conflict, and then suddenly another great Pharaoh rises up. And you have the new kingdom. And that's where most of us, most of what we know about ancient Egypt comes from the new kingdom. Where, you know, that's where you have the Valley of the Kings and the Queens and Tutankhamun, Ramses the Great, the Queen Hatshepsut, you know, um, all those folks. Um, up until the Greeks took over. So... That's mostly what we know of ancient Egypt, and it was more of a populist understanding of Egypt. You could go in to your local scribe shop and say, I want this chapter of the Book of the Dead and this chapter and this chapter and this chapter, uh, and I want to take those with me. And since I can't read, draw me some pictures to go with it so I know what it says. And so there was less true knowledge about what was going on and yet it was also more available to people. So it was kind of a little bit of a trade-off. Well, I think, too, I think one of the other things that you, you talk about is, is light consciousness and how the element of light figured into 
to all of all of the hieroglyphs, and it, it is no surprise after after realizing how much they they utilize light, you know, light coming from the mouth, light going, you know, it, it's light consciousness is here. It, it doesn't surprise me that Akhenaten decided to, to you know wipe out all of the other gods and just have the one sun god, which was the light. So. So how do, how does the concept of the light consciousness, you know, flow into all of this? Well, there are the light consciousness is an understanding that um there can be there can be no um illumination without darkness. Uh-huh. You know, one of one of the great metaphysical dictums is if you want to hide something, hide it in the light, which is that's where nobody would Look, they're not. If it's right. totally bright, you can't see it. You know how you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden the, you hit this white patch, and you can't see anything in front of you. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the shade and the shadow, the shadows of Ra, were equally as important as his illuminations, right? Um, and I guess to me, there's a great, um, wonderful metaphysical understanding of the shadows, kind of like where you're looking at Carl Jung and his work with the Red Book and his dream life and uh, trying to understand these parts of himself that uh, were the edges of his own knowing, if if you will. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, okay, so for example, the, Ra has 72 shadows that present themselves in the underworld. And these 72 shadows have particular names. Some of them are like, they're psychologically uh, prescriptive in a way, or descriptive. Um, And there's this picture of Ra, and um, his head is detached from his body, and it's like floating away. And And the name over the shadow, each shadow has a name. And this one is called, He Whose Head Is On Too High. <laughs> so you I know, know when you them. think about that, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, oh, I have this great illumination, you know, and I shine so bright, and you know, my head's way too high, and I can't, you know, I really can't see myself because I'm uh-huh. so lost in in my own brightness. Uh, there's another one of of Ra called He Whose Head Is On Backwards, and there are some people that I know like that too <laughs> who are lost. In like oh I coulda woulda shoulda you know yeah. those kinds of thoughts or um, blessing the man who can't see his current wife because he's thinking about his dead wife all the time you know oh. he whose head is on backwards those kinds of things you know becoming lost in the past um, it's very interesting to me or lost in regret, you know, go ahead and name it whichever way you see it. He had 72 of these shadows that were really interesting. And all of them are in the process of transforming in the underworld. And so that is is what you see on Tutankhamun's tomb when you are looking at some of these beings that have been carved on the side of his golden shrines. And you will see some of these shadows of raw with their names and their process of transformation and cobras spitting fire into their third eye or their crown chakra uh, or, you know, goddesses streaming 
uh, energy out of the tips of their fingers, you know, into the earth. It's just absolutely beautiful imagery. Well, yeah, they were they were very deeply into analyzation to a degree that that nobody ever gave them credit for. I oh, mean, yeah. it it just to me in in you know looking at those you know my shadow self i have you know i could i could name a whole bunch and the fact that it was acknowledged that you know i'm working on mm-hmm. this i'm working on that i'm you know i'm not quite there yet but you know this is something that's still following me around and i may take it into the next life and it just seems to me that there was so much um all of their stories illustrated archetypes that later on in time, people say they invented, but they're right there. The, the hero's oh, journey, yeah. the the archetypes are in all of these stories. If you look for it, if you just you know, if you if you subliminally, you know, just 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 epithelially, you know, listen to the stories, and you think that's a cute story of creation, yada yada. But the reality is, there are archetypes there that that talk about the development of the soul of the spirit and the journey that it's on this lifetime. I mean, it was right. amazing. It is amazing. Totally amazing. Um, and a lot of stuff, uh, just like you said, a lot of things that we think uh, have been invented as fairy tales or myths or so on, like uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, making the broom break into half <laughs> and dance. You know, we remember that. We think, oh, that Walt Disney, that's an ancient Egyptian tale. Oh, wow. It, yeah, it's an ancient Egyptian tale of the sorcerer's apprentice and, and the guy who tries to make the Ushabti. They're called Ushabtis to do the work in the underworld. And uh-huh. he tries to make some and he can't stop them. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Very interesting. Well, I think that, that uh, you know, your your book certainly opens up one's eyes to the fact that that they understood the development of the spirit and and the expansion and the element of ascension and what it takes to get your spirit to where it needs to go and and basically you know is it going to go on to the celestial rest home or is it going to come back down on earth and, and work on some other aspects of the self i mean they were so deeply into the the spiritual part of life that that it it amazes me that it, that the history books haven't picked up on that and started to express it so people could understand where a lot of right. the stuff that we have today comes from and, right. and you know you so beautifully have put it in in this book and 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 in your other book too um i think that that you know and and of course you know, you have to have had a past life there or you wouldn't have been so integrated into all of this. I mean, it just, you know, it doesn't take a mystic to figure that one out. Um, <laughs> well, I feel like I probably have, but I also like to think that maybe um, I've been working on it diligently this lifetime too so that I can go back into the past and do even better. Because I don't believe that our we reincarnate forward only, you know. <laughs> No, I would agree with that. That yeah. would make that would make great sense. But but you know, I think the the magic um 
they they were very into the vibration too, and that's where the voice and the and the motion, you know, that that you can't, you don't you you don't have any examples of it, so you just don't know how powerful some of this stuff is. Um, right. They shared it there pretty any, well. What well, was they there any their way magic. that? Oh yeah, I, I mean it just, and, and they wouldn't even talk it. So that, right, because so that, if, if somebody knew how to take their magic, you know, it could be misused, and so they were very protective of it. Um, even the sounds of the words, you know, you and I were speaking earlier. It's like, is it Toth? Is it Thoth? Is it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do we say his name? And the ancient Egyptians write it, and it looks like Tahuti or Jahuti. I mean, they even wrote it different ways. And so I think that it's important to remember that that sound vibration is part of the magic of the word. And Mm -hmm. when you can't protect it, you just have to say, God bless it, they are taking care of it, you know. Uh, Have you ever heard of Dorothy Edie or Om Seti? I'm sure you have come into contact with Om Seti, yes. Um, yeah, the story of her. She um, she had past lives in ancient Egypt, and she could speak the ancient language in the way that the ancient Egyptians did in order to do such things as uh, send a cobra that's coming out of a wall to say the right word that will send it back where it came from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And and she had to practice it and figure out, you know, is it Seba, is it Seba, you know, is it, but she came out with the right word, Seba, you know, and then boom, the snake goes back where it goes. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, we don't know exactly how it was pronounced, but if we play with it, we can hit upon a chord that vibrates within ourselves you know, uh-huh. that then we know that we are on to something. Yeah, I wouldn't want to practice it with a cobra, though. No, um. no, no. <laughs> Nor I. <laughs> uh, luckily, she knew what to do. <laughs> but but yeah, I think that's something that's so important for people to understand, that, that, that while the work, while, while the symbols... And the and the spiritual essence that is there is certainly profound. That there there are many other levels that we haven't been able to access because we have no examples or or anyone that can really teach it. But but they utilize vibrational energy. I mean, and and you know, there's often been the uh, philosophy that they used energy in order to move the stones that built the pyramids. And right. N- you know, knowing what what vibrational energy can do with the megahertz, with music and and energetics that can can you know um, dis, you know defy gravity and levitate things. I mean, it it to me, their magic is something that we really don't totally understand because while they wrote about it, we figured that was just a figment of somebody's imagination, and I don't think it was. Yeah, right, and it's not. And, you know, if you go on YouTube and you look at Steve Halpern, with uh, he's got that plate of sand that he puts inside the coffin in the great 
pyramid inside the chamber and he starts toning over the sand and it begins to move into various shapes the cymatics that Hans Jenny talks about you know um, with the Sanskrit is also alive in all of the vowel work inside the Great Pyramids and so you can actually physically see it moving it was such a prized talent to be able to intone the psalms and the prayers properly that um, that particular priest had his own title and was called uh, true of voice so uh, and so they could speak Hekama'at the true magic and true of voice yeah and it was really interesting I hope you're a uh, reader, your listeners, sorry, can um, go to that uh, Steve Halpern video on YouTube and look up the word cymatics in the Great Pyramid and actually see the way that sand moves as vowels are intoned across it. It's amazing. Well, you know, certainly all of us have experienced a piece of music that suddenly when it was played we tingled inside you know there was something yeah. that was that was that was resonating with us so that there was something mm-hmm. going on and and it it you know people will say oh i got chills well of course you did there was an energy there that was that that your body was physically mm-hmm. reacting to and and you know and most people will just say oh it gave me chills isn't that isn't that amazing and they don't stop to think what was that? How do I use that? How do I replicate it? How do I incorporate it into my own evolution? Um, and, and I'm as guilty as the next person um, because you know, there have only been a couple of times in my life that, that I've had what I would call a mountaintop experience with energetics. And, and you know, you want to get back to it. You want to recreate it. And, and it's it's difficult to actually recreate not only the sound, but where you were in consciousness when that happened so that there was that synchronicity that your body reacted to. Right. And, I mean, I don't sing, so I cannot intone that way, but I write poetry. And I can tell when I've written a good poem because I'll get that same kind of zap up my spine, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, I've I've done that with writing, and I would sit back and say, "Oh, did I really write that?" <laughs> you know? uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just—I'm wondering think, if other I people... studied with. Oh, I'm sorry. I studied with Wendell Berry, who's a wonderful American poet, and uh-huh. um, he said to me uh, one time, and this was the most important lesson I learned in my poetry class from him. He said. Nizella, if it don't sound right, it ain't right. <laughs> <laughs> and he he said it that way to make a point. But it, you know, he said it that way to make a point. If it don't sound right, it ain't right. You know, it's like okay, I get that now. <laughs> but you know, it, I think that is a quality that today we we totally don't pay attention to, and. It, it yes. you know, and and people aren't really doing that much speaking. You know, they're texting and they're they're bastardizing the the language by not writing whole words. And and, and there is a magic in being able to express yourself in a way that touches other people's hearts and souls. And 
and I think that the Egyptians had it down that there must have, it must have been quite an experience to be in the presence of someone who was working this kind of magic. Um, if anyone yeah. has ever been at, a, at an ashram when, when thousands of people were toning or, or chanting the Om. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You know, it, it, it makes you heady. And, yeah, and I love and, the word med- magic because it comes from an ancient Egyptian word, which is medju, uh-huh. M-E-D-J-U. And medju netter is the word of God. So medju means word. It's ma- word magic. And netter is God, the word of God. But netter is also now, all of nature. Not, now and so, the, yeah, brooks are babbling and they're speaking the language of God in uh-huh. the same way that uh, the wind through the trees is speaking the language of God. It's all what a, part of it. What, what about... What about the the magi or the magi or magi the the astrologers that that uh, theoretically followed the star to the birth of Christ? Yes. I mean, well, they, they you know they um, those were probably Zoroastrian astrologers, uh, uh-huh. but anyone who lived in an ancient culture out in the desert had access to an incredible amount of sky. Uh, mythology and um, precision, astronomical precision, numerological, uh, mathematical, geometric. And, you know, they were really adept at watching stars rise and fall across the latitudes. And many of the temples, not to mention the pyramids, are aligned to particular stars that rise on particular dates. Uh, and so there's this whole uh, philosophy of archaeoastronomy that you can look into that will tell you how far back some of those temples were established because the star that they're linked to is no longer uh-huh. the main star. It's moved in the sky now. Yeah, the, know, the pole star of years. Yes, the pole yeah. star in particular. Yep, Draco. Um, yeah, it, it used to be what, Thuman? Way back? Yes, Thuban, yes. Thuban, yeah, exactly. No, it's it just, to me, you've, you've uncovered such, such yeah, another pot of wisdom to look into because, you know, along with the archetypes, along with the, the stories of creation, um, if, you, if you peel away the Egyptian mythology and just look at it, Spiritually, they had so much right that that even even current traditions like Christianity and Judaism and, and they've they've sort of overlaid all of the wisdom to the point where they've lost the point of the magic. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's amazing to go back to what at this point in time I would consider the, the real source of a lot of these major religions actually was. Right, right. And it's only 5,000 years ago. I mean, it's not that far back. I mean, but... That we know of. Yeah. <laughs> but then well, but then but, there are all the, the um, ancient Egyptian uh, gods 
god kings. They were like semi-divine who were before the very first, you know, before Narmer. And they were called uh-huh. the sons of Horus uh, or the Shemsu Hor. And there were thousands of them, ten thousands of them that lived before that back to 10,000 B.C. So, you know, we have little uh, petroglyph images of them out on the rocks in the desert, you know, that uh-huh. we can find. So, and the fact uh, that, you know, that, yeah, the fact that they've been recorded tells you that there's a part of history that we haven't yet discovered or or uncovered or whatever. And I I would think that that with time we will find records of them to a certain degree. Uh, again, you know, it's sort of like. They were not primitive. They were highly sophisticated. And to uncover where the sophistication came from um, will give you a deeper understanding of their concept of the soul's journey. And they believed in reincarnation. They believed in, you know, the journey of the spirit. Um, and and it just, to me, it's so exciting to uncover all of this and realize that, that you know, here's the spirituality that people are looking for today, and it's only 5,000 years old. Um, and, and you know, people are coming out with new books on spiritual development and ascension and stuff like that, but it's already there. Why don't they right. pay attention to it? Right. right. It's not new material, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and And it's so exciting that... That are there are there people who are trying to reproduce the toning and the, and the pronunciation and are they using technical equipment to to register as megahertz and stuff like that to try yeah, to determine? I think, yes, there are. Yes, there are. And um, Jill Matson is one that I think is doing a lot of interesting work with the ancient language. Uh, I think his name is Mutabi Ashi Mutabi. Oh, I cannot remember. Ashar Mutabi. Um, I've read some of his work. He's pretty good. But the one thing that, that fascinates me in terms of working with the the sound is those scholars who are studying the Coptic Christian priests who are praying in remnants of the language that is ancient Egyptian. And so that's where they're getting a lot of what they believe may have been the pronunciation is coming from these Coptic priests, you know, uh, Greek mm-hmm. Orthodox and Coptic priests. It's very interesting. Well, um, well the Solfigio music came originally from the um, Gregorian chanting. That's and right. That's right. That was, that's frequency stuff. And... Um, mm-hmm. And and if anybody's has you know interested in that, so just so I think Ted Winslow puts out some amazing um, solfeggio music that does. I mean, it it gives you shivers. It definitely touches something inside of you, and and it's sort yeah. of like okay, I got touched now. What do I do with it? <laughs> but but the rea- the reality is that, that sometimes the vibration without words is more powerful than trying to explain it with words. It's it's because it'll be different for everybody. Everybody's in a different place as far as spirit, spiritual evolution. And yeah. so it wakes you up in in ways that is appropriate for the individual. It's not, 
it's not a blanket this is what it does to you and this is where you take it it's 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 each individual utilizes it as appropriate for their own energetic field so um yeah. it, it's just it's amazing stuff but it it's you know i kind of i don't want to turn people off from religion because people are, lots of people are religiously oriented and that's important for them but but at the same time there's magic that goes beyond the religion that that doesn't necessarily in any way conflict with the religion, but it enhances your spiritual development. And I think studying the um, uh, the material in your book, especially the one that I just read, Imagining um, the World, um, yeah, Imagining the World into existence. Yeah. I mean, it's it really does, in many ways, explain how you have control and power over so much of your life that you don't realize and that all you need to do is to start activating that stuff inside of you and your life changes Mm -hmm. and a term I've used often and I will use it until I find a better one but if you get involved in this kind of material it takes your life from black and white to technicolor in a heartbeat yes it does and it does you perceive things differently, and we do create our reality by our perception of it. So that, so that, understanding a lot of the, the Egyptian philosophies and you know what what and ha- what has been written and and how to how to embrace it on a spiritual level is really important. And I think your books, all of them, you know, lead to that. You 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 in the two books that I've looked at. One I've read, one I've just looked at. Um, you you go into the spiritual philosophy and energetic behind the words, and you're very very articulate about what it means and how it flows. And you know, I'm not going to do it, but if I were younger, I would definitely be tempted to learn to interpret the hieroglyphs because there is magic in it, and it's almost like a hieroglyph can can trigger something in you so that you understand it to a greater degree and, and, and a different way. It gives you a different view of reality. Yeah. Yeah. We we are um worldwide, you know, steeped in in symbology. And whether we're looking at hieroglyphs or Mayan or Celtic runes, um or the Kabbalah uh, or even uh Chinese uh, glyphs, you know, uh-huh. um, calligraphy. I think that we we look at things and we can see spirit inside them. If you are a medium, for example, you can look at the entire world as if it's a spiritual message. And I think uh-huh. that's the whole point of learning hieroglyphs or any type of symbol uh, system is to be able to um, take the message that that is inherent in the image itself, and it's not just projection, you know, because it is a spark of light that is constructed oh, yeah. in a particular way uh, that is being impressed upon your psyche, and um, yeah, it's, it's think, not it's not an accident. You know? No, I I truly believe also that that. Probably every every spirit on the planet at this point in time has had at least a lifetime or two in ancient Egypt. 
and so that it's it's a matter of looking at a hieroglyph, understanding what someone says it means, and then letting yourself flow into what it means to you, and it mm-hmm. can unlock a lot of stuff inside of you. It, it's it's just it's profound. I, I was fascinated with it because you do you give the hieroglyph, or you explain it, and then you 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 go into a greater interpretation of it, and. Um, in many cases, I couldn't pronounce the names of the people that were connected to them, but the the glyph itself, um, you know, it triggered something inside of me. It was almost like, now that's familiar, now why and what does it mean to me? And if you take mm-hmm. the time to go that extra step, then you enhance your own evolution and your own spiritual understanding, and, and, and it will drive you to, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to go into, you know, hieroglyphs and interpreting them, but understanding that that not only visually but sound and vibrationally everything has something to do with your spiritual evolution and if you are observant enough to grasp some of it it enhances your ability to be a better person yes yeah agreed but i just noticed our time we are out and oh. it went fast like <laughs> <laughs> it flies when you're having fun. <laughs> yes, it does. But um, let's see. I have did I did I put down your website? Um, I did someplace. It's pretty easy to remember. It's normandyellis dot com, and spell Normandy with an I instead of a Y. Uh-huh. And you do do um, you you do um, tours to Egypt. Um, and, and shamanic journeys and stuff like that. So you do you do a lot of providing people with with the ability to reach inside themselves and find another level of understanding of their own personal spirit. So um, yeah. I encourage everybody to. I, and she's only written fourteen books or so. So um, <laughs> you are an expert for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. But yes, cool I'd love is, to. Have- Love to have you and any of your guests come with me to Egypt. We are uh, going twice a year now through twoladiestravelco.com. And, um, yeah, it's always a two-week trip, lovely experience. I would love to. I just, you know, I I am not a homophobe, but... um, Living out of a suitcase is not my thing. I'd rather, I actually, something that that you know you might think of doing, and certainly you're you're highly qualified to do it. Um, well, while going to Egypt would be cool, um, doing remote viewing is also very cool. Yes, it is. <laughs> and and so I I would um, I know that. Uh, a long time ago, I did a remote viewing um, journeying with, with people. I had about 50 people, 50, 100 people, and we did remote viewing, and the Great Pyramid was one of them. And um, we did it online, and so on my website, there's a, 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 a section, a button you can push that you can listen to the meditation that took us remote viewing into the Great Pyramid and the uh, Chinese emperor's pyramid we we did pyramids all over this oh, world fabulous. And, and the oh, short meditation 
is there, and there's a place where you can you can um, you can leave your impressions as well. It's a it's a blog. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you please don't listen to the first couple of them because we were just breaking into you know. I found that people stopped journeying when I stopped talking, so I had to continue to talk. So the first couple of ones were trial and error, getting people all together as a group. But we did the Bosnian pyramid and we did pyramids on the moon. So um, and the the meditations were short, fifteen twenty minutes, so they weren't That's horribly fabulous. long. That's fabulous. Yeah, the, uh, I'll look. The meditation, I'll look up those. Yeah, the meditation is there. You can click and be a part of the meditation and. Um, and you know, go along with us. Um, they were they were very. I'm, I'm seriously thinking of starting them up again. But but that's remote viewing, and and it's another form of travel where you don't have to pack anything, and your bathroom is right next door. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but I want to thank you so very much for for sharing your information with us. I so appreciate your time and your energy, and certainly your book was fabulous to read. Oh, thank you, Barbara. It was really great to be on your show. Oh, we'll get you back. You have fourteen books. You know we can do this again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Thanks again, and you good take night. Take care now. All right. You too. Good night. Okay. Good night. Thank you, everybody. Uh, this will be up on YouTube later on tonight, or for sure tomorrow. And um, if you if you enjoy it and some of the other interviews that we have on board, please subscribe to the channel. That's how we know you're actually listening, um, and we're not just talking into the ether. Well, we are actually talking into the ether, but we know somebody's listening. That's the important thing. So thank you for being here. Tomorrow night, Mark Eddie will be with us, and then we'll be back again next Monday. Have a great one, everybody.